No Time to Die, Black Widow and Mulan all got their brand spanking new trailers this week and Wonder Woman 1984's very first trailer is about to be released. Plus, I review Watchmen Episode 7, The Mandalorian Episode 4 and The Nightingale. All this and more on today's episode of Small Screen Stories. Hello and welcome to Small Screen Stories. On this weekly podcast I'll be going through the biggest and most entertaining stories from the world of pop culture and entertainment. So let's start off with what I believe to be the most interesting story of the week and that's No Time to Die's new trailer. So I'll start off by saying I'm a massive Bond fan. I'll go as far as saying a massive Bond nerd. The main reason why I love cinema so much is because of James Bond. I know that sounds rather... I suppose a bit simplistic. It's like they're movies about a spy and the a lot of the films, if you watch them now, they don't... I mean, it's not that they're not good, but they're very dated. But these new Daniel Craig films, especially uh, Casino Royale and Skyfall, have been really quite different, I think, as far as James Bond's concerned. And this new film, with the addition of uh, people like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's uh, kind of rejigged the script a bit... The addition of um, actors like LaShawn Lynch, uh, Lea Seydoux coming back, and also um, Anna de Armas in this film as well. It looks like, by watching the trailer, it looks like this is going to be a really different and interesting Bond movie. One that I'm hoping will kind of round off Craig's time as Bond really well, because this is the last time he's going to be playing the role. I do have one... Well, actually, I have a, I have a few. I'll go into a lot um, into them in more detail later on. But there are a few uh, things I'm not so keen on with this new trailer. Um, mainly, one of one of the things I was never quite convinced about um, casting Rami Malek in this, and he does come off in the trailer as being a bit of a kind of generic Bond villain, um, which I was hoping for something slightly different, especially after the likes of Javier Bardem playing a Bond villain, and even Christoph Waltz in the last film, although Spectre wasn't brilliant, um, it wasn't very good at all actually, but Christoph Waltz had something and he's kind of playing the same thing that he always does. I don't know, I mean I'm not going to judge a film before I've seen it, definitely don't judge a film by its trailer. The trailer is actually really, really good, it looks good fun. Fingers crossed, let's just say that. Moving on to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Um, another trailer to hit the internet this week was Black Widow, her first trailer uh, for this film, which uh, to me, I mean, next year is going to be the year of kind of the spy thriller films. This again is another very interesting proposition. I've been waiting for a long time to see Black Widow. There are many reasons why it's, uh, it's taken this long. I'm not going to go into them now because they're kind of a bit boring and it's all to do with... um, what's going on at what happened at Marvel before and who was in charge but a Black Widow film kind of always made sense and uh, this is the this we'll see Scarlett Johansson or Johansson return as Natasha Romanoff who we know very well from uh, from the MCU she's been in a lot of films and it's about time that she got her own her own film and this one this trailer it it really does I think it shows something slightly different from the Marvel Cinematic Universe first off it's got a fantastic cast so you know you've got like um, Rachel Weisz in there you've got Florence Pugh that a lot of people are very excited about David Harbour from Stranger Things and they're kind of 
There, it's also we're going to see Taskmaster for the first time in the MCU, which is really exciting for people that know anything about that villain. He's a really interesting villain. He's someone that's able to mimic your abilities and basically uh, fighting style and fight exactly the same way as you are. So it's really difficult to fight this guy. <laughs> it's virtually uh, impossible. And he's he's one that's he's a, a character in the comics that's come up a lot against Black Widow. So I'm really excited to see this film. There have been some um, comments about the white suit in the trailer that uh, Black Widow is wearing. Uh, people likening it to the suit in Metal Gear Solid, the video games. Um, I don't think that's really something we should be worrying about. I think it's just a cool looking suit, really. Moving away from uh, Black Widow and on to a good friend of hers, Captain America. So Captain America 4 might actually see the return of Red Skull as the film's villain. So the reason they might be able to do this is actually because, um, I'm not sure if you know this, but um, in Avengers Endgame, Red, Red Skull wasn't played by the original actor. He was actually played by uh, Ross Marquand from The, uh, from the Walking Dead. Uh, Hugo Weaving originally played Red Skull in the in Captain America, the the first Avenger, and he did a really good job. But he never wanted. He made it very clear that he didn't want to be in another uh, Marvel movie again after this, which is kind of sad because it means that the character supposedly is going to just be left alone. But then they realise that Ross Marquand can do a fantastic impression of Hugo Weaving's Red Skull. So now they've got the ability to bring him back, and uh, he was his rather small scene in um, Avengers Endgame was uh, sorry not Endgame it was uh, he is in Avengers Endgame but he was originally in Avengers uh, Infinity War that was the kind of the impactful moment I think everyone everyone kind of I remember seeing that in the cinema and people kind of gasped when he came back because we never thought he'd be back again but it's now looking like we're actually going to get to see Red Skull in the MCU again thanks to Ross Marquand so thank you Ross it's uh He's a brilliant character and one that they didn't really get to expand upon in the MCU, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man in the MCU, has been talking about how he saved Spider-Man from an MCU exit. So back in, this was back in September, I believe, it was looking like uh, Marvel and Sony Pictures weren't going to be able to solve their problems and weren't going to be able to renew the contract that... Um, that they'd uh, agreed upon earlier they i think a lot of it came down to money and how much um and percentages basically but um they ended up solving the problems because well they both had to um i'm pretty sure sony could have gone on without marvel but these it would have been weird and um and they've really benefited from marvel studios kind of running the show as far as spider-man's concerned because i mean remember back to the amazing spider-man films they were not good um, the first one was fine, but the second one was terrible. So, Tom Holland was on uh, J um, he was on Jimmy Kimmel Live, and he basically uh, told the story of how um, he called up Bob Iger. Oh no, Bob Iger called him up whilst he was drunk. Uh, so, uh, Tom Holland was doing a pub quiz uh, some place in London, and he was rather drunk at the time, and Bob Iger phoned him after um, Tom Holland had asked for the guy's email address so he could um, he could kind of email him and explain to him why they needed to make sure that Spider-Man was still part of the MCU. So it was, it's kind of, it's, it's quite a nice story. It's, um, Tom Holland, of course, has been a big part of why Spider-Man's been so 
just so good recently. The films have been very good, and he's been very he's been very good in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. And it really did look like they were going to use him as a kind of platform on which to kind of make other movies, and he was going to be like the linchpin for the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a similar way. Well, not really similar, but kind of a bit like the way Tony Stark was. They were kind of angling him in that in that direction. And if they weren't going to be able to use him again, it kind of would have been weird and they really needed to sort it out. But Tom Holland has also been talking to GQ. So he did a video with GQ and uh, in it, he kind of went onto the internet and was commenting as himself on YouTube videos, on Wikipedia and on Quora as well. And um, during this this video, he actually threw some shade at Tobey Maguire's um, version of Spider-Man basically claiming that his version, that Tom Holland's version of Spider-Man is just more interesting than Tobey Maguire's. So there's a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of shade thrown on old Toby. Poor old Toby. But uh, honestly, I think uh, his, Tobey Maguire's version of Spider-Man, there's a lot, there's a lot of good in that version of Spider-Man. Moving away from Spider-Man on to uh, Venom. So Venom 2 is being, uh, is in development at the moment. So it's going to be directed by Andy Serkis. I'm really excited to see this. Because uh, I think this is a, the perfect kind of vehicle for him. Uh, he's he's already proven himself to be a very talented director, and we all know how good he is with uh, motion capture. So whether or not they're going to bring more of that into into the Venom world, I, I really hope they do because Tom Hardy is playing Venom, and if they really capture his physicality as Venom, uh, I think that would be fantastic. But they've just cast um, uh, Stephen Graham. Uh, they don't. They don't, haven't revealed who he's going to be playing in the movie, but he's been in films like re, well, recently, The Irishman, Rocket Man. If you've been watching Line of Duty recently, whether you're in the UK or in the US, he was in the he was in season four, and he's just brilliant. He's in a lot of Martin Scorsese films, and having him in a film like Venom too, he's a really talented actor. So whoever he ends up playing, I'm really excited to see him in this film because, I mean. Stephen Graham just needs to be in more stuff and that he needs to be a kind of almost like a household name, I think. Uh, they're also, they've also revealed that uh, apparently um, producers of Venom 2 are now looking at making the film R-rated after Joker's box office success. So Joker, nobody thought Joker was going to make, make over a billion dollars at the US, uh, the worldwide box office. But it did. Uh, it was made on a basically a, sh a shoestring budget, if you can say that. <laughs> if you can say that $55 million is nothing. But that's how much they made the film for. Compared to um, other films that they've made, that Warner Brothers has made, like DC Comics movies, they've been spending over $100 million, Well over $100 million. And um, the reason they gave uh, Todd Phillips such a low, supposedly low budget is so, because they didn't want the film made. Warner Brothers executives were a bit weren't very keen on the idea of making this movie, so they were, they thought that Todd Phillips would cut, turn around and say, "Look, I can't do this with fifty five million, but he took the money and made the movie, and it's gone on to make over a billion dollars uh, at the box office, despite the fact that it's R rated. So in America, R rated is I think it's a uh, uh, you can only watch it if you're sixteen and you're accompanied by an adult. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but over here it was a fifteen. Um, in the UK, uh, and it's it's kind of unusual that a film with that sort of rating does so well at the box office because it's kind of it's cutting your audience audience basically in half. 
Um, so what they tend to do is they tend to make their films PG-13 so as many people as possible can watch these movies. Um, and what ends up happening is that the, the films are basically kind of neutered in a weird way. So they're not, it's not quite the vision that um, they had intended. So it looks like Venom 2, they're, they're going to take a leaf out of Joker's book and they're going to make it R-rated and see if it can work. So moving away from Venom and onto Batman. So Robert Pattinson has been talking a lot about Batman over the last few months, ever since he's been cast, actually. He's been, uh, he's been chatting to everybody about it. So he's been doing press for The Lighthouse, which is his upcoming movie, but he was talking to Today um, in America, and uh, they, they just asked... It was kind of a, a bit of a kind of passing comment by the interviewer about uh, Batman being a superhero, and Robert Pattinson immediately responded saying, Batman's not a superhero. It doesn't count. You need to have magical powers to be a superhero. And you know what? I agree with him 100%. I don't think Batman's a superhero. I think he's just a hero. And uh, and he's well, it's one of the reasons that he's so interesting is because he doesn't have any superpowers. He's, uh, I mean, he has a lot of money in the bank. So that that is that could be considered a superpower. But um, it's just he's just a man that wants to stop wants to fight crime basically and has a, a lot of money behind him to help him do that but he's also at the peak kind of a physical condition for any human which is why he can hold his own against people like superman he's also very intelligent which helps but uh more kind of dc that i mean i suppose it is D, it's dc comics related news um zach snyder has been uh added again so uh he's been posting a lot of images recently of um, uh, kind of his uh, behind-the-scenes shots from his version of uh, the Justice League, which has meant that a lot of people are trying to get... Well, they've got the hashtag uh, release the cut trending on Twitter. People like Ben Affleck, Gal Gadot, uh, Ray Fisher got involved and really kind of... There was a day when it was like literally it looked like they were gonna Warner Brothers was going to have to release a Snyder Cut. But people have been questioning whether this is even... A reality whether the Snyder Cut actually even exists. So Zack Zach Snyder went to Vero again, which is the social media platform he likes to use. Uh, no, <laughs> nobody else I know uses it, but he seems to enjoy it. And he posted a picture of uh, the reels of the Justice League reels and uh, over overlaid the. He wrote a caption over this image. He said, "Is it real?" Question mark. Does it exist? Question mark. Underneath, of course it does. So, yeah, it looks like it looks like uh, the Snyder Cut of Justice League is a reality. We've also had a, a look at some of um, the characters in Wonder Woman 1984. So we actually haven't, up until now, we haven't seen a, a single image of Kristen Wiig as Cheetah, which is quite unusual because we've seen all the others. We've seen Pedro Pascal as Maxwell Lord. We've seen um, Chris Pine back as Steve Trevor. But we haven't seen Cheetah yet. So at the moment, there's a, um, a Comic-Con going on in uh, San, Sao Paulo. And Wonder Woman 1984 is a big presence at this Comic-Con event. So they've, of course, there's a lot of merchandise around. So someone snapped a picture of, I think it's a mug, with a kind of a, a cartoon version of uh, Kristen Wiig's Cheetah on it. And she looks. it looks like they're kind of going a bit low-key. With her look, uh, she's kind of got a, a leather jacket on, and a, it's kind of she does have some leather. She has some leopard print 
there. But it's not it's not uh, the cheetah from the comics, and uh, I think people have been a bit upset about that because they were hoping that they could see that version in live action. But no, it's looking like they're definitely going down a kind of more grounded route route with this. And uh, you know what? I don't mind it that much. I like Kristen Wiig. I think it's quite interesting casting, and um, I'm actually I'm really looking forward to seeing this film. Talking about Wonder Woman 1984, I'm gonna po- I'm gonna <laughs> publish this and po- post this episode and. The trailer probably would have had would have launched by by the time that this is out, but it's they've announced that the the full trailer, the f- very first trailer for Wonder Woman is going to release on December eighth. That, so that's today as I'm recording this, and uh, I'm really excited for this because I've I've been looking forward for the Wonder Woman sequel ever since watching the first one, and um, it looks like. There's, there's, they've released a little trailer, a little teaser trailer, and um, it's, it just looks like more good Wonder Woman content. And uh, yeah, so by by the time this is out, you'll probably be able to watch the uh, the very first Wonder Woman 1984 trailer. Right. So moving away from Wonder Woman and on to Joker. So I was talking earlier about how much money Joker's been making at the box office. It's been making a lot, and um, it's recently just made more than Batman vs Superman, which is insane considering how big that film was. That film was like a, it was an event movie. First of all, you have the title, which is Batman vs Superman. I mean, it kind of sells itself, uh, but no, Joker's made more money than it, and um, I think one of the reasons why it's made so much money is because it's actually had relatively little in the way of competition. There haven't been that many, um, up until I think recently when Knives Out came out, I think um, most, most, there wasn't really a big blockbuster that came out at the same time as Joker that really stopped it from making money or stopped people from going to see Joker. So it means that a lot of people, if they go to the cinema, they've just been going to rewatch Joker, which is, I mean, first off, it's a really good film. So that's one of the reasons why, and uh, it's it's just a very good version of, uh, or it's a very interesting version of the Joker on screen. It's very different, and um, it also with all the Oscar buzz, I think a lot of people have just been going to see it just just out of pure curiosity. People that probably wouldn't go and see a, a DC Comics movie normally. So it's kind of got it's got a much wider appeal, I think, than most DC Comics films, which is one of the reasons why it's been doing so well at the box office. So let's move away from some of the uh, the comic book stuff. I mean, they, they do do Star Wars comic books, but you know, let's move away from Marvel, DC, Batman, you know, all that stuff, and move on to Star Wars. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I reported that there were test screenings of Star Wars: The, the Rise of Skywalker. And that apparently they didn't go down very well. Well, J.J. Abrams has actually said that these test screenings never happened. And uh, the only people that have seen it are some of his friends and family. I mean, that was when he was at, when he was talking about it. And that was pretty recent. That was uh, at the beginning of this week. So it basically means that all those, all those reports you've been reading from a lot of outlets out there, like places like... <laughs> I don't, well, I'm not going to name names, but there are some outlets out there that have reported that the there were three versions of the movie, and there was a Bob Iger version, there was a J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy version, and a George Lucas version. It's all it's all a load of nonsense. None of that is true. Um, the only people that have seen the movie so far are 
<laughs> I mean, the executives uh, at like Lucasfilm and Disney and J.J. Uh, Abrams' friends and family. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a, a pretty select kind of amount of people that have seen this movie so far. There's also, there have been some rumours, though, about who's going to be in the film and which kind of older character is going to be in the movie. And according to, so making Star Wars, so they actually tend to be quite uh, reliable. And um, they they, they uh, published an article in which they revealed that uh, the likes of Anakin Skywalker, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Maz Kanata, and uh, Ezra Bridger were all going to return in a kind of vision sequence that Ray was going to have, and you're going to hear their voices but not necessarily see them in the movie. So that means that there's the possibility of Hayden Christensen coming back and Ewan McGregor coming back. And then I don't know what they're going to do with Ezra Bridger. I mean, that's that's a really kind of left-field one because Ezra Bridger is from the Star Wars Rebels TV show. Uh, he's a very popular character as far as Star Wars fans are concerned because uh, he's a Force user. And uh, he, we there's... I mean, the, the show's about him, but it ends on kind of a cliffhanger as far as his character is concerned. So, and I've, I personally, I would really like to see him in the, in the Rise of Skywalker. So, I think this. I, I mean, I, I personally, I believe that this will happen because, I mean, thinking back to J.J. Abrams's first Star Wars film, there was a, a very similar kind of vision sequence with, involving Ray, and uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do the same sort of thing here, where like Luke comes back as well, and Leia comes back, and it's it's kind of echoing what happens in, in Harry Potter. There's a in in a, I can't remember which book it is now, but there is a se- a sequence a bit like that, and I'm wondering whether they're going to do this sort of thing in this final, this final Star Wars kind of film and this trilogy, um. But there's there has actually been one one person who's definitely seen the movie, and that's Richard E. Grant. So he plays um, Price, a guy called Price in the movie. That's part of uh, he's part of the uh, the First Order. And um, I'm just trying to... Allegiant General Price, that's it. And uh, so he he took to all his social media platforms. I found it on Twitter. But he posted a video of him just reacting to having seen Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And it sounds to me like he was very emotional in this video. So this is what he said. He said, I've just seen Star Wars The Rise of, uh, Star Wars, the Rise of Skywalker and... Nothing prepares you for this. I cheered, I shouted, I fist-pumped the air, I cried, I stood and cheered. It's been absolutely everything, it's absolutely everything you hoped it was going to be. I'm so proud to be in it, and I can't wait for you to see it. So that is a ringing endorsement. Honestly, um, I, I, uh, I honestly, I think this means that the film's going to be really good. I... I know that Richard E. Grant is in the movie, but I'm not. I'm also. I don't think he would do that if the film wasn't any good. Uh, I. I really. I don't. I don't see him doing that. And uh, and also the just watching the video. If you can go and check it out because it's 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 a really interesting video in itself because he's so emotional in it. And uh, and it's obviously like an immediate reaction to the movie to having seen the film. And now this has got me really excited for this. And it's only a few days away. It's uh, December 19th, so literally days away now. It's incredible. I, I, I can't believe that it's here. Uh, more Star Wars news. So Oscar Isaac has been talking about um, about the movie, but in, in particular about Finn and Poe's relationship in the film. And he revealed that he he that he does wish they had been written as, as gay characters as, as a couple. 
And I really do think that was something. I remember first watching um, The Force Awakens thinking this would be a really interesting route to take. But he actually said that they weren't brave enough to do it, that people weren't brave enough. And I, I actually think that is true. I think at the time, we were still on the cusp of kind of things changing. We were still, when The Force Awakens came out, it was still um, like the Me Too movement hadn't just, hadn't really taken off yet. And people hadn't, they, I suppose, executives felt that people wouldn't accept this sort of thing in a Star Wars film, which is, it's not the right thing to do. You should just go for it if you can. And, um, and you should just write the like characters the way you think they should be written. And and the, and there was definitely there there were those vibes going on there with that with those two characters that they had a very close relationship and i really do think it would have been it would have been the perfect opportunity for them to actually have the first the first two openly gay characters in the star wars franchise it's annoying that they didn't do it and that i mean they're not doing it it's not happening in this film um i wish they had done but you know maybe in the future hopefully maybe this film they'll, they'll have something in there that's that that just pushes the franchise forward in that sense. Um, th uh, this next piece of news is, <laughs> this was the best video of the week, definitely, easily. So somebody, um, I can't remember the name of the YouTuber, it's, uh, oh, I, can't, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but they re-edited the whole Star Wars saga and mixed in bits of The Room. In it, so you've got Tommy Wiseau now edited into Star Wars, and it is fantastic. So if you haven't seen the room, the room is the uh, the YouTubers are called Pistol Shrimps. So if you can go and check them out because they do some really cool stuff, and they've done stuff like this before with Tommy Wiseau. But if you haven't seen the room, the room is the best worst film ever made. It's fantastic. It's so bad, it's good. It's literally the best worst film ever, and. Um, they basically took scenes from the room and managed somehow really cleverly to make a story with these by inserting bits from the room into bits of the Star Wars saga. And it actually, the story makes sense. And they turn uh, Tommy Wiseau into a Jedi and then a Sith. And it's fantastic. So if you can, I really, I really do recommend you go and watch that, especially if you've seen the room. I think you'll really like it. And even if you haven't, it's just funny. It's like, if you can go and see clips of The Room on YouTube, which is how I first uh, discovered the movie, I really would recommend you do it. It's very funny indeed. Uh, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker's J.J. Abrams says, Ryan Johnson set up wonderful things for his movie. So this is just nice to hear. It's nice to hear the fact that, um, first off, that Abrams actually liked The Last Jedi. Uh, a lot of people out there that didn't, but he, he seemed to really enjoy it. And he actually said that, the, um, where The Last Jedi kind of finishes, for him, like, it's it was perfect because he could, he could take that and do what he was originally going to do with the Star Wars franchise to begin with. The ideas that he and Lawrence Kasdan had when they first wrote The Force Awakens, they could still do them in The Rise of Skywalker, even though it, the, the Last Jedi had been written by somebody else. And it was, it was probably taken in a slightly different direction that they were um, expecting like a lot of Star Wars fans. <laughs> but um, it's definitely, uh, it's, it definitely is means that there's going to be a kind of cohesive through line throughout the whole uh, Star Wars trilogy. Um, more Star Wars news. So, 
there, there was a uh, reports that Kevin Smith was on the uh, on the set of Star Wars: uh, The Rise of Skywalker. He actually came to the UK to go to Pinewood Studios, and people are not sure whether or whether he's in the movie or not. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be in the film because they've been talking about it. And it, actually, J.J. Abrams has t- basically teased that Kevin Smith's going to cameo in the film. So if you don't know who Kevin Smith is, he's literally the king of all geeks. He's the guy that made films like Clerks. He made More Rats. Um, he's he's made movies. He's made TV shows. He has a podcast. He has written comic books. He's literally done everything, everything you can imagine in the world of Hollywood that someone's done. And uh, he's he's a massive geek. He he loves Star Wars. He loves comic books. And um, the fact that he's going to be in this is actually quite big for a lot of uh, a, a lot of Star Wars fans and a lot of just comic book fans and, and just pop culture fans in general, because it's literally he's the ultimate he's the ultimate geek. And, and finally being in the movie in the movie like this is, is a big thing. And basically, J.J. Abrams said he may or may not be in the film, but it's, you know, it's a little nod and a wink. And he's he's definitely in the movie. He wouldn't spend five days on set without you know, then being like, oh, why don't you put this on and we'll do a scene. Yeah, he's definitely in the film. There are also rumours that Supreme Leader Snoke will be in um, in The Rise of Skywalker in some form or another. So this um, <laughs> this news, it's it kind of, I, I first read it and I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this because, you know, he definitely died in The Last Jedi. But then I was thinking, actually, He's not the first character in Star Wars to be like dismembered, to be cut in half and then come back. Darth Maul was, um, you know, seven and a half in uh, in the Phantom Menace, and he still comes back in. Um, he came back in some of the uh, in the Clone Wars to begin with the the TV animated TV series, and um, and then he came back in Star Wars Rebels as well, and then he was at the end of uh, Solo Star Wars story. So he's actually become. Even after his supposed death in uh, the Phantom Menace, he's still become quite a big part of the of like the over kind of Star Wars saga in general. So let's move away from Star Wars and move on to Star Trek. So apparently, Star Trek Four might bring back the Klingons as the film's main villains. So this is something that we've been waiting for for quite a while, actually, to have you know the, the actual Klingons back, and not just the Klingons, but um, so it's it's a special it's a certain um, member of the so I'll, I'll go i'll go into it a bit so basically this this star trek 4 is going to be directed by noah hawley who is well known for having done having kind of created uh, tv shows such as fargo and legion and uh we got this covered basically said that they're going to bring back uh, Kr- uh Kruge, the klingon so he's a klingon warlord and the, he's going to be the apparently the main villain of this film. So he was last seen. He was first appeared in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and they're they're hoping that they, well, that the idea is to bring him back in some form or another. And probably he'll probably will be the main the main villain in this in this film. So this um, moving away from Star Trek and onto another film franchise that I'm just in love with, and that's Mission Impossible. So it's been rumoured that Tom Cruise will actually stop doing Mission Impossible movies after the eighth film in the franchise. So if you don't know how many films that leaves, I completely understand because after they stopped numbering them, it became very confusing how many, like which which film was which. 
So it all started in 1996 with Mission Impossible. Then we got Mission Impossible 2 in, two, in the year 2000, and then J.J. Abrams' uh, Mission Impossible 3 in 2006. So after that, it, there was quite an extensive break, actually. And then in 2011, they decided to just get rid of the numbers completely, and then they came out with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which was directed by Brad Bird. After that, we got Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in 2015, and that was Christopher McQuarrie's first uh, Mission Impossible film. After that, he in 2018, he made Mission Impossible Fallout, which is the, the last one we've seen, and he's also making Mission Impossible 7. So that means that Tom Cruise has got two more Mission Impossible films to do. He's got 7 and 8. And Tom Cruise isn't young. He's, uh, <laughs> he's I believe he's 57? Yeah, he's 57 years old. So that means he's going to be well into his 60s by, by the time he finally hangs up his uh, Ethan Hunt boots. And that, that's just ridiculous. That is <laughs> To be doing that for so long, he's been doing Mission Impossible since 1996. It's an awfully long time to be yeah, the, the lead in the franchise. I, I don't think this has ever been done before. It's, but then again, these films are just brilliant. They're, they're so good. So, so good. Um, Fallout was just fantastic. It was my favourite film of last year. I know it's you know it's one of those films that I just love. I love action movies, but I love good action movies, and that was that was just fantastic. So moving away from Mission Impossible and onto Mulan. So Mulan, the Disney live action version of Mulan, has had its first trailer, and you know what? I really liked it. I thought it looked really good. One of the big problems I've had with these uh, Disney live action remakes, which is what they are, is that a lot of them just are basically complete like shot for shot remakes of the movies they're 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 you know they're they're redoing. So you had like Beauty and the Beast. I mean they had they had like additional songs, but I mean it wasn't it it was basically the same film. And I'm and then the Lion King was the biggest like the it that's exactly what it was. It was just a shot for shot remake of a movie. Apart from the fact that the like. Okay, I, I don't much care for John Favreau's The Lion King. Let me get that out there right away. The fact that they redid um, the, the scene in which they sing Can You Feel the Love Tonight during the day is just one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in just Hollywood history. And I was watching it thinking I'd much, be, I'd much rather be watching the cartoon, the, the animated version, because at least you can see, like, the, first of all, it's a really good film. Secondly, you can actually see the characters emote because it's animated. I don't want to... Anyway. And then they released Aladdin. And I actually thought Aladdin was one of the most interesting live-action versions of these films. Because it was so different. It was so different from the cartoon. Yeah, Will Smith in there being properly Will Smith. Actually, I really... You know what? I really enjoyed Aladdin. Uh, and you had that kind of Guy Ritchie tone about it. And, you know, they toned it down a bit, but it was still there. You could still feel it there. It was in its DNA. And I think Mulan is going to be more in line with Aladdin than the other live-action remakes. Because, first of all, it looks like they're not going to have the songs in them. Which is a shame, because Mulan has some great songs. But it's more about the story. And Mulan's story is actually really interesting. So it's basically about a woman going to war, a girl going to war in a world where it's just men going to war. And she's doing it to save her f father from, you know, he's old and he's basically, he will die in this war if he goes. So, and it's, you know, what? I mean, there, there have been some 
some um, I'm not going to go into them in, in detail, but there, ha there has been some controversy around the actress that plays Mulan in it and what she's been saying. It's all political, so I'm, I'm not going to go into that here. But that the film and the trailer itself, they look good. It looks very good. And I'm I'm really interested in seeing in seeing this. So away from Mulan on to Planet Planet of the Apes. So apparently, um, uh, 20, sorry, 20th Century Fox wants to make more Planet of the Apes movies, and they already have Wes Ball lined up to direct. So if you're not familiar with Wes Ball, I'm not surprised because the only films that he's made that of note really are the Maze Runner trilogy uh, movies. And, you know, th those films, I've watched two of them, and they're actually fine. They're not that bad. And as far as Planet of the Apes is concerned, um, people might be seeing this and going, oh, really? But think about what Matt Reeves had done before doing Planet of the Apes. He did Cloverfield. But apart from that, there was nothing really, like, incredible that he'd done. And I'm seeing Planet of the Apes as a kind of franchise that um, Fox is kind of letting younger filmmakers do and kind of develop their skills as filmmakers, which is why I think it's a really interesting franchise. I think War for the Planet of the Apes and um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, I think it is, the Matt Reeves ones, I think they're fantastic films, really, really good. I actually think the trilogy is fantastic. And it looks like they're going to do some more. So... Moving away from Planet of the Apes and onto Transformers, my least favourite film franchise of all time. <laughs> uh, and I don't say that lightly, I think it's terrible. But apparently Paramount wants to reboot the Transformers franchise. Why? Makes them a lot of money. They made a lot of money out of, uh, out of uh, Transformers. Do they need to be doing this? No. But they probably need the money. I honestly think it's quite quite... It's a bit of a shame because after I actually really enjoyed Bumblebee. I thought Bumblebee was quite a, a fun movie. And out of the Transformers films, the one decent film in that just load of rubbish. It's just nonsense. And um, they, it looks like they're going to go back to the kind of Michael Bay days where those films just made a heck of a lot of money in places like China. Mm. Oh, well. Moving away from Transformers very quickly and onto uh, Alita Battle Angel. So the sequel apparently might happen. And um, basically the, the producer of the film. So th they've been in a bit of a difficult situation because the film was made by, it was a 20th Century Fox film. It was made by Robert Rodriguez for 20th Century Fox. And then Disney purchased uh, Fox. So it's kind of put... Um, Alita Battle Angel 2 in a kind of state of flux so first off I'll say I actually think Alita Battle Angel is actually quite fun <laughs> um, it's not great but it's first of all it's visually really quite striking and uh, and there's something there there's definitely something there that they can build on the film kind of ended on a cliffhanger uh, it's it's a weird movie it's such a weird movie but you know I like I like it for that and I, I would I think that a place like with Disney if they had uh, the sequel come to uh, Disney Plus, I think that would be really good. But the problem is, they spent a lot of money making the first film. Uh, Fox put a lot of money into it, and it was basically a flop. It didn't do very well at the box office, and that's the main problem they have with this: is that it, it the technology used in this is is quite expensive, and getting a film like this made isn't cheap. So bringing it to a streaming platform would naturally just 
kind of slash your budget because they don't want to be making they don't want to be spending that much money on a film that'll be on a on a streaming platform but apparently basically what what the producer said is that they 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 just want fans to get out there and just demand that Disney makes this film which is you know it's it's worked in the past so who knows it might it might work again so Nicolas Cage yes he is i've said this i think before in this podcast Nicolas Cage is my favorite actor of all time i think he is insane but he is always very watchable literally anything he's in it's just you either get like peak Nicolas Cage where he's just in, he's just manic and insane and just brilliant <laughs> like unlike any other actor in hollywood or you can get like very bad Nicolas Cage where he's just not very interested but he's going to be in a film called Color of Out uh, Color Out of Space which is um it's a an adaptation of an HP Lovecraft uh, book and apparently they're going to be turning this into a trilogy this is going to be the first film in a trilogy so this film is Nicolas Cage teaming up with the Mandy producers if you haven't seen Mandy it came out last year it is insane but in a good way it's very good that film it's um i think it requires more than one watch which is the sign of a very good movie actually a movie that needs to be watched more than once and uh and this film looks very strange as well and it's coming out next year and it's hope the, the idea is to make make this in the first film in a trilogy and i'm all for a Nicola, another nicholas cage trilogy although we never got the final uh, film in the national Tre- treasure franchise i i want that movie so I think it's time to move away from movies and onto TV. So we've been hearing a lot about The Witcher. The Witcher, which is uh, coming out very soon. Um, I believe it's the 19th of December it's coming out. So basically the same day as, uh, <laughs> as Star Wars, but it's coming out on Netflix. And the early reactions to it have been very good. So some people have got have had the pleasure of watching the first few episodes of the new season and they've likened it to Game of Thrones, of course, but some people on Twitter said one that there were a lot of reactions to it, and they were all basically saying how good the combat was in it. And it one person said game it made Game of Thrones look awful. And this is what I want. I want The Witcher to show everybody what a you know a really good show can look like if it's done right. And I think uh, Henry Cavill is a fan, is going to be a fantastic lead. And I'm really, really looking forward to this. The books are really interesting. The, game, the video games are brilliant. So they've got, the, they've got very good source material there. Anyway, moving away from The Witcher and onto The Mandalorian. There's a lot of Mandalorian news uh, coming out this week. So Ryan Johnson revealed that he wants to direct an episode of The Mandalorian Season 2, which I am all for. I think that would be wonderful. I think he's a very good director. And Season 1 has had some really good directors. Um, you know, it's, they've, they've really, um, they've really pushed out the boat. They're like Deborah Chow's in there directing an episode. Uh, you've got, uh, Taika Waititi is going to be directing an episode or has directed an episode. Dave Filoni as well directed his very first live action episode. Some, some really big names there. And it's, um, and I think honestly, if you add Ryan Johnson to season two, I'm all, I'm all for that. So, uh, another, I mean, some more uh mandalorian news is that actually involving ryan johnson it seems as though ryan johnson might have spoiled that uh baby yoda is going to be in the mandalorian season two so he basically said he was on on set and uh and he uh and he said a couple weeks ago 
and that he saw the puppets on set. Which means that Baby Yoda is going to be in season two. But we all knew that was going to happen anyway. Uh, the final bit of Mandalorian news this week is that the penultimate episode will feature an exclusive Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker sneak peek. So that means that the um, not, I think it's next week's episode is, uh, I think it will finish with a little sneak peek of what's to come in uh, in The Rise of Skywalker, which is just another reason to watch this show, which is actually, it's a really solid show. I'd give it that. It's a very solid show. One show that I absolutely adored uh, this year was The Boys on Amazon Prime. And uh, season two's trailer was released, but I think by accident, because um, it was everywhere. It was literally everywhere, this trailer. And then all of a sudden it was gone and you couldn't find it. And I think maybe someone at Amazon press published by accident. I don't know what happens, but yeah, it's not. It, it's still online. You can still find it. And it is very gory. It looks like they're really ramping up the gore in this uh in the second season of the boys which is uh again it's um based it's based off a comic book by garth ennis and it's it's a really good it's a really good show it's like turning the superhero genre on its head it's superheroes in this are kind of evil and it's normal people are trying to fight back and i i, I really thought i can't i can't talk say enough good stuff about the first season if you haven't seen it yet go and see it crisis on infinite earths so this is like the CW's kind of big comic book crossover event. And apparently in the UK, it's going to air with one episode missing, which is, <laughs> of course it is. This always happens in the UK. But it's all to do with Sky 1. It's all to do with Sky again. So apparently, uh, because they don't have the rights to Batwoman, so the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths episode that's going to be part of the Batwoman series is just not going to air in the UK because... There's no, it's not, the the season isn't showing in the UK at all, anywhere. So Sky has the rights to every other uh, CW kind of superhero show. So it's got the rights to Arrow, it's got the rights to The Flash, it's got the rights to Legends of Tomorrow, and uh, I might be missing one out there. I think it's Supergirl it's got the rights to as well. Uh, so it's like, again, it's just all down to contracts and like, I mean, I don't know why Batwoman's not coming to the UK because I'm actually really excited to see that. But yeah, it's just it's just one of those things. Anyway, it's features time. So the first thing I'll say is that on the site now, if you go on the site now, there's a, I did an interview with um, one of the stars of The Nightingale called Baikali Ganamba and uh, he's, he's fantastic. First of all, I'll, I'll talk about The Nightingale in more detail a bit later, but he is wonderful in the film. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting chat about working on the movie, working with Jennifer Jennifer Kent and what it was like working and filming in Tasmania, which sounds just insane, what they have, the stuff they had to do. And also this film is Matt is kind of already the subject matter is really, really, um, it's really difficult. It's a difficult watch, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It's very good. Uh, I also did a, a feature about um, No Time to Die. And I, okay, bear with me. It's called... Is it just me or does No Time to Die not look very good? And that was after my first viewing of the trailer where I watched it and I was thinking, honestly, I don't want to be made to watch Spectre again. <laughs> and it seems to me like this film will rely on that a lot because first of all, they bring back Christoph Waltz, which I didn't actually think was happening. I didn't know they were going to do that as Blofeld in the film. And... It looks very much, at first glance, this film looks very much like a very formulaic Bond movie, which I really wasn't, I really didn't want. 
Because first off, it's Daniel Craig's last film. Secondly, you've got Phoebe Waller-Bridge helping write the script. Third, you've got uh, Carrie Fukunaga directing. You know, then you've got Lashana Lynch playing uh, 007. Then you've got An Ana de Armas in the film. Then you've got Lea Seydoux coming back. You know, this is all great stuff, but then you've got Rami Malek's villain, and it's just like, it's like a guy in like, the, fan is it like the Phantom of the Opera? I, it just looked really kind of, it, I had echoes of kind of some of the really bad uh, Piers Brosnan Bond films. That, ugh, they're not good. A lot of those films, like, no, um, well, not to, actually, I really like Tomorrow Never Dies, so that's not one of them, but it, The World Is Not Enough and um, Die Another Day and those sorts of, of Bond films, and I was kind of thinking, ugh. But then I've watched, I've watched the trailer multiple times after that, and actually, as <laughs> ever since writing that feature, my, I think I've changed my tune on Bond, and I'm, I'm really excited to see this film. I think, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's going to be good. Watchmen episode 7's big twist was there for us to, for, was there for all of us to see, and here are the clues we missed. So that is my final feature of the week, and um, I'm not going to spoil anything, because, you know, if people haven't seen, a lot of, I know a lot of people aren't up to date on Watchmen, there's a big twist in episode 7, and I went through all the clues that were peppered in the first couple of episodes of this first season that were basically pointing us to to this happening and uh it's a big deal what happens in episode seven and uh, i just i implore you all to be watching watchmen so on to reviews so i mentioned the nightingale a bit earlier and i gave it a 9.5 i was thinking why didn't i give it a 10 and i'll, I'll tell you why um it's because the type of film it's probably because it's so it's such a tough watch that I wouldn't want to sit through it again. And that doesn't mean it's a bad film because it is this I think honestly Jennifer Kent is quickly becoming as she was but she's quickly becoming I think one of the most interesting and important filmmakers working today. Her first film The Babadook kind of reinvented horror. For us it was just it was it it was unlike anything I'd seen before. It was so good. There were so many and there were themes upon themes going on in this and it was about something and then about something else and I'm just thinking god how can you get all this stuff in one movie and it be terrifying and that there there's a lot of similar there are a lot of similarities here with the nightingale there are a lot of themes being explored it's a it's a real life story which makes it even more impactful because this actually happened so it's set in Tasmania in uh, in the uh, 70 kind of early um colonial period where basically part it was during what they referred to as the Black War, where um, British colonialists came to um, Australia and basically were just eliminating all Aborigines uh, living in in Australia, and it was it was a terrible time, and it was very important to um, to Jennifer Kent to make this movie because it's a story that just isn't told, and it in it. Um, it's there's a character called Claire that's uh, just a terrible terrible thing happens to her she's basically um she's uh, the servant like she's um a servant for the British army unit which is commanded by a guy called Hawkins that's played by Sam Claflin um and it's really there's there's one of I think one of the most difficult scenes you'll probably ever watch in uh, in Hollywood well it's not really a Hollywood movie I wouldn't call it a Hollywood movie it's 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 an independent film really but 
it's very it's very harrowing and apparently during um the screening in places like venice and stuff people left after the scene because it was just too much but it that the the thing with i mean I'm, i don't want to talk about the scene too much but the thing with this is that it's the way jennifer kent shoots it and 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 it's actually done in a way that it, you don't see that much but your imagination does the rest, which is one of the reasons why it kind of shocks you so much, I think, is that people don't really realise what's going on, but it's it's your imagination that's making it worse than it really is. Because like, what's shown isn't actually... What you think is... You, you know you know what's happening, and, but it's not actually shown, if that makes any sense. And uh, it's just... I, I think if you can go and see a film this week, you have to see The Nightingale. Um, it's it's probably playing in limited cinemas and limited, but it came out on Friday, and it came out sorry last week, and it's just it's a very important film, and I think it's one of the most important films made this this year, certainly this year, maybe in the decade of this decade. It's uh, it's it's the kind of film that you don't really see that much, and apparently it was very it was very hard for Jennifer Kent to get it made because people just wouldn't give her the money for it because it's it's a bit of a I suppose they were seeing it as a bit of a risk it's something that they're like do people really want to see this but I think you should if uh, it's a hard watch it's not an easy watch I wouldn't say it's an easy watch at all but it's um it's a film that needs to be seen really it really needs to be seen anyway moving away from the nightingale and on to Watchmen episode 7 I mentioned this a bit before as well but there's um I gave the last episode a 10 because I think as a standalone episode the the episode before so episode 6 was something that I haven't seen before on uh, in television it was just it again <laughs> I think I love this but there were so many different themes being brought in so many different ideas so many di- it's a very again another it was a very important episode I think there's a lot of stuff in there about racism and about um uh this segregation in the, in the United States, but not just the United States, the rest of the world as well. And this this episode kind of brings it back to the main story, to the present day. You know, we we're back with the the characters that we've been back. We've we've been following the entire season, and it is a it's a brilliant episode. It's just, it's brilliant, and there's there's a, a twist at the end that's like it comes out of basically nowhere, and you're you're starting to see these mysteries unravel. As this season and you know gets towards its climax, and it's really starting to build up momentum now, and it's you just realise how much work they've been doing in the episodes before, and it's really starting to pay off. And I think I, I I've said this I think every week, but Watchmen is it, it is the the best show on television at the moment. Uh, the problem is is um, I've spoken to a, a lot of people about it, and they're a bit like you know I'm not I'm finding it quite difficult because I don't really understand what's going on. And I think the main problem is a lot of people aren't that familiar with the... There, there are people out there that aren't f- so familiar with the comic book as I am. So I'm watching it and thinking, oh, God, they've done this, they've done that. They, you know, they've really, like... They've re- it's, it's a really kind of just continuation of what Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons wrote, uh, came up with in the original Watchmen comic. And um, it makes... I think, I think you do need to read the comic book in order to really... Um, get the most out of this show it's just one of those things really but it is brilliant i think you can still watch it and really enjoy it without without having read the comic oh i should say graphic novel 
moving away from Watchmen and onto The Mandalorian episode four. So last week I was talking about how I was a bit worried how The Mandalorian was going to go just into fan service territory. And again, I think this, uh, I did enjoy this episode, but I, I felt a bit deflated by the end because I was thinking, yeah, it's going there. It's definitely becoming very fan servicey. And that's not what I wanted from this show. I wanted something different. And I think the main problem I have with The Mandalorian is that I'm watching it at the same time as I'm watching Watchmen. So I know I shouldn't compare the two, but then you're thinking, well, Watchmen does this. And there's not really anything like that in The Mandalorian. You know, The Mandalorian isn't really about... It's just... It's a very simplistic story. So... And it's it's fine. It, it is fine. It's a very good kind of... Start. It's as good as you could hope, as you could expect a Star Wars live action series to be that's uh, has John Favreau as its showrunner and Dave Filoni as one of the writers. It's a it's a, a series that's made to please the fans, and I think that is perfectly fine. And I'm I'm enjoying the series, but for some reason I don't know why I was expecting a lot more, which is why I gave this episode. I only gave it a seven, which is on on our scale. It's solid. Which it is. It's solid. It's a. It's it's an interesting episode, you know. They're, they're base. It's it's a very much a one-off kind of episode. It's like a one and done, and um, on a new planet, and you know stuff happens. I'm not going to go into like details, but and then they move away basically, and and move on to the next thing, and in a way, I don't want to liken it to the CW superhero shows, but it is a bit like that in that sense. There is some acting in it that's a bit hammy I think and dialogue that's not quite right but then again it is Star Wars so you know what else can you expect but I still would recommend that people watch it, especially if you're a Star Wars fan I think as I am I think there's a lot to love about the Mandalorian and especially with um, Pedro Pascal as the Mandalorian even though he's got a helmet on he he's very good as, as the lead anyway so that that's that's it. That there was a lot to go through this week, and as usual, I merely scratched the surface of all the news that came out this week. But please go and check out Small Screen, which is at www.small-screen.co.uk, for even more comic book uh, news, pop culture news, features and reviews, all sorts of things you can find on there. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Small Screen GB. Please, if you like the uh, the podcast, please subscribe and share it if you can. That'd be fantastic. And thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back here same time next week. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>